three, two, one, zero, zero, and liftoff. This is Nuclear Knowledge. Production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. Welcome to another episode of Nuclear Knowledge, a podcast of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we seek to advance peace, promote stability, and encourage you to think deterrence. I'm your host, Adam Lowther, and today's show is about deterring terrorism. 22 years ago today, violent Islamic fundamentalists flew passenger jets loaded with innocent Americans into the World Trade Center's Twin Towers in New York City and the Pentagon. More than 3,000 Americans perished on September the 11th, 2001. The nation also lost more than a trillion dollars worth of national treasure. It would go on to spend almost two decades, six trillion dollars, and sacrifice more than 4,400 additional American lives to hold those accountable who took part in those acts of terror. I will never forget where I was when the phone rang and a friend in California told me to turn on the television. I did so just in time to see the second jet explode into a ball of flame and smoke as it hit the second tower. America changed that day as terror became the most important security concern for the nation. As we remember the anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, we have an opportunity to place the use of terror in a larger context. With the global war on terror now over and the United States focused on preventing China and Russia from toppling the liberal international order, we can ask ourselves, how do you deter the use of terror as a tactic? In a previous episode of Nuclear Knowledge, I mentioned the conflict pyramid. If you recall, The capstone of the conflict pyramid is nuclear war. The next layer is conventional great power war, like World War I and II. Below this is conventional conflicts where political aims are limited, as are the means employed. The Korean conflict and Vietnam are two examples for the United States. The next layer down is insurgency, which is exemplified by the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. Finally, the bottom layer of the conflict pyramid is the use of terror. If you can imagine an arrow on the left side of the conflict pyramid pointing downward, this is the direction of danger, with nuclear war being the most dangerous and terror being the least dangerous. If you can then envision an arrow on the right side of the pyramid pointing upward, this is the direction of likelihood with terror being the most likely and nuclear war being the least likely. With this image in mind, I'd ask you to think about terror as a military tactic. Craig Stapley defines terrorism as the threat or use of violence on non-combatant populations or property with the express goal of creating or exploiting fear in a larger audience for political or ideological reasons. In other words, those who employ terror follow Clausewitz's dictum, war is the continuation of politics by other means. It is important to keep in mind that an adversary who employs terror does not do so because they are terrorists. 
This term has no real meaning beyond serving as a pejorative to delegitimize the tactics of an enemy. Terror is a tactic of the weak, which is why those who use it tend to select targets that are largely unprotected but have a connection to the government or political actor whose policy they are seeking to to change and influence. After all, the use of terror is about achieving a specific political objective. If you recall the conflict pyramid, terror is the least dangerous type of conflict. It does not pose an existential threat to the state. Those who employ terror only do so because they do not have the means to engage in forms of conflict that are higher on the conflict pyramid. In his book on guerrilla warfare, Mao Zedong explains that the guerrilla begins with terrorism, but seeks to gain strength so that he can move to a regular warfare and ultimately conventional warfare. In other words, your objective is to employ terror for as little time as possible before moving up the conflict pyramid. Dismissing an adversary as irrational because they employ terror to achieve political objectives is not very helpful. If you recall from another previous nuclear knowledge episode, rational choice theory in its most basic form only requires a rational individual to have preferences, rank those preferences, and seek to achieve those preferences. They need not share American values or our wants, our desires, or anything of the sort to be considered rational. Let's return to our original question. How do you deter the use of terror? Let me first define deterrence. According to the Department of Defense Dictionary of Military Terms, deterrence is the prevention of action by the existence of a credible threat of unacceptable counteraction and or the belief that the cost of action outweighs the perceived benefits. Dr. Strangelove described deterrence as the art of producing in the mind of the enemy the fear to attack. Deterrence by dissuasion, denial, and threat all offer options for deterring an adversary who employs terror as a tactic. Dissuasion is the most pacific form of deterrence and is focused on changing an adversary's thinking through non-military means. For example, many groups that employ terror tactics do so because disaffected members of a society band together to seek change, and because of corruption, authoritarianism, and a lack of freedom, terror becomes the only outlet for seeking a redress of legitimate grievances. It should come as no surprise that it is largely in impoverished and oppressive regimes where terror groups form, grow, and receive the support needed to build an effective organization. It should also come as no surprise that terror groups find it very difficult to build the support needed to sustain themselves in democratic systems where corruption is low and free and fair elections allow citizens to seek change through the electoral process. In short, the first place to start in seeking to deter the use of terror is in considering the grievances of those willing to resort to terror for political aims. 
they often have legitimate reasons that drove them to such a radical decision. Now, groups like Beider-Meinhof, the Red Army Faction, Black September, Japanese Red Army, the Symbionese Liberation Army, Red Brigades, and the Weather Underground, all formed in prosperous and free Western nations in the 1960s and 70s, and were never able to recruit more than a handful of members as the larger public rejected their aspirations. The Muslim Brotherhood, Hamas, the Irish Republican Army, and other nationalist terror groups were more successful in developing support bases because they sought to address legitimate grievances that were supported by many citizens. While none of these groups were ever mass movements, they gained enough support to create a serious challenge. In short, political and economic reform is often the best path to undercut the grievances that give rise to the terror group in the first place. Now, deterrence by denial is also an effective way to deter terror attacks. It is important to remember that these organizations seek political change, but are too weak to engage in conventional warfare. Thus, they seek soft targets that are tied to the political actor they are seeking to influence. The Twin Towers and the Pentagon were symbols of American economic and military power which made them attractive targets for a terror network seeking to reshape American foreign policy in the Middle East. I worked at Sinkus Navier in London during and after the American embassy bombings in Kenya and Tanzania in 1988. We were co-located with the American embassy. So I got to see the installation of bollards on the sidewalk to prevent cars loaded with explosives from driving up to the embassy front door. For more protection, they soon installed jersey barriers to reflect any blast away from the embassy building. Finally, the embassy moved out of central London to a larger piece of land south of the Thames, where a more secure facility was built. These are examples of deterrence by denial. A second example comes from the fight between the British government and the Irish Republican Army. After the IRA kept placing bombs in public trash bins across London, the government removed all the trash bins from city streets. An easy target was removed as an option. Finally, there is deterrence by threat. Here, acts of terror generate a clear punitive response. For the state, it is important to avoid applying punitive action in a way that lends credence to the terror group's grievances. Thus, it is a fine line that a state must walk as it seeks to deter by threat. In the years after 9-11, the United States' actions often made matters worse rather than better. Deterrence by threat is consistently the most challenging approach to deterring acts of terror, especially if a terror group has legitimate grievances and broad support. In the end, the use of terror, like crime, is almost impossible to completely eliminate. The good news about terrorism is that it does not present an existential threat to the United States. Again, it is a tactic of the weak. 
In other words, terrorism is good for Americans because it means the United States has so thoroughly weakened and defeated an adversary that their only resort to violence is through a tactic that does not threaten the nation. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Nuclear Knowledge. We hope you found the information provided useful. Stay tuned for next week's episode. A production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies.